Hi. Um, thank you all for being here. Uh, as Amy said, I'm Ian Stansel. I'm the director of the Creative Writing Program at the University of Louisville. I'm happy to welcome all of you to this year's Writer's Block Festival keynote. Um, first off, I want to thank a few people and organizations um, without whom none of us would be here. Thank you to Spalding for being such great partners and providing this space. And thanks to Louisville Literary Arts, of course, uh, for doing the majority of the legwork and putting the festival together. In particular, thank you to Amy Miller, um, on whose shoulders most of this festival rests, and to LLA President Ashley Clark Thompson, as well as everyone on the board at LLA. Those of us over at UofL uh, really appreciate your work, your partnership, and your friendship. Um, I want to uh, take a second just to remind everyone to turn off their cell phones or silence their cell phones. Nobody wants to be that person. Um, and if you think it's off, maybe double check anyway. Um, as Amy said, uh, we will have time for a bit of Q&A after Garth reads. Um, so as he does read, make mental notes of all the things you want to ask him. Um, I'm sure there will be uh, more than a few. This keynote reading is a part of the Anne and William Axton reading series, which was established in 1999 through the generosity of the late William Axton, former UofL English professor, and his wife, the late Anne Axton. The series brings highly distinguished writers from across the country uh, to the University of Louisville, normally, today, Spalding, um, to read from their work and to share their knowledge and expertise with um, the university and the larger Louisville community. Tonight, the highly distinguished writer we have the pleasure of welcoming is Garth Greenwell. He is the author of What Belongs to You, which won the British Book Award for debut of the year, was long listed for the National Book Award, uh, finalist for six other awards, including the Penn Faulkner Award, the James Tate Black Memorial Prize, Los Angeles Times Book Prize, uh, a New York Times book review editor's choice. It was named a best book of 2016 by over 50 publications in nine countries and is translated into a dozen languages. Uh, a new book of fiction, Cleanness, is forthcoming from FSG in early 2020. His fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Public Space, Vice, he's written criticism for the New Yorker, the London Review of Books, the New York Times Book Review, among others, and he lives in Iowa City, a place dear to my heart also. <laughs> Author Rebecca Mackay writes that, quote, if Henry James were alive in this strange century, if Thomas Mann had been allowed to write raw sex, if Virginia Woolf had slummed it more, if Proust had been born in Kentucky, if they all commingled their blood and brains, we might get something like Garth Greenwell. His novel, What Belongs to You, which, the New, which New York Magazine calls exquisite and breathtaking, and The Guardian calls masterful, follows an unnamed narrator protagonist teaching in Sofia, Bulgaria, where he meets Mitko. Am I saying that right? Mitko. 
a street hustler working the bathrooms under the city's national palace of culture. Over the course of the book, the two characters become entwined, connected not only through sex, though that is no small part of it, but through the often overwhelming and far more fraught desire they feel towards one another. As Greenwell says in an interview with the Paris Review, what the narrator, quote, finds exhilarating about Mitko is what seems like the promise of an exact alignment of desire and sex, end quote. And this becomes complicated when the narrator has to, quote, grapple with and acknowledge Mitko's full personhood. Rereading the book this week, uh, in anticipation of this, I was again astonished by the simultaneous literary virtuosity and other utter lack of pretension on display. Even as the book experiments in, with form, as in section two of the book comprised of a single unbroken 41 page paragraph, it never feels as if it is putting these formal undertakings above the deeply compassionate treatment of its characters. Indeed, this section moves with such a seemingly natural associative current from memor memories of the narrator's father to early sexual experiences to revelatory conversations with his half-sisters that we never doubt the, necessity, the necessary connectedness between the story being told and the way it is being told. In writing workshops, we often refer to the architecture of a story as its structure. And as author Stephen Koch writes, quote, a good structure will make your story more tellable. And I can hardly think of a better example of this in action than what belongs to you. It is a feat I think about often. But with all this structure talk, I fear I'm getting into the weeds of workshop lingo. Because Greenwell's writing is not merely a series of literary accomplishments to be picked apart and examined, though I do think any writer would benefit from such a process. But first, I would encourage you to simply read it. Read the scene where the narrator and Mitko uh, are in a darkened McDonald's playroom of all places, and the scene that feels all at once sad, dangerous, and sexy. Read the narrator's silent fear for the safety of a housefly, inexplicably still alive in the middle of a Bulgarian winter buzzing around the window of a city bus. And see Mitko, who should and I believe will be regarded as one of the great characters of our literary era, standing on the street below the narrator's apartment, drawn back to him by increasing desperation, first and foremost, but also, I believe, by the slight chance at, as Greenwell puts it himself, a, quote, human intimacy that exceeds transaction. Greenwell's new book, Cleanness, continues the story with the same narrator, now with his Portuguese boyfriend, R, and I'm very much looking forward to reading this in the new year. Because its predecessor, What Belongs to You, is one of those rare books that feels like such an inevitable and natural part of this world that it seems to have always existed. But of course it hasn't. And it wasn't magically plucked out of the ether. Like any book, it was written word by word, sentence by sentence. And yet, this feeling of timeless permanence persists 
Perhaps it is, as Rebecca Mackay notes, the connections to such luminaries as James and Proust and Wolfe. But for me, I think it's simply because after having read it, I don't really want to imagine a world without it. Please help me welcome Garth Greenwell. I'm so moved by that introduction, Ian. Thank you. Um, so much about publishing a book is terrible. It's um, horrible and disorienting and weirdly humiliating to have something that you make in the most absolute perfect privacy become public and become an object about which anyone can say absolutely anything they want. It doesn't need to be true or correct. Um, but occasionally you get a response from a reader um, that is evidence of a sort of act of profound communication. And that um, makes all of the foolishness and absurdity of being a writer in the world um, feel worth it. Thank you, Ian. Um, thank you, Amy and Louisville Literary Arts. Thank you to the University of Louisville for bringing me here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to my family for coming. Uh, it's very strange to read in Louisville and have my family here. Um, also, May, um, that reading was stunning. Um, it's such an exciting feeling. I, I get to do this every now and again. You know, read these stories that presumably very few people have read. You get to be one of the first people to read it. And when you find something that you think, oh, this is the real thing, it's so exciting. And then to hear it so beautifully read. Um, I'm questioning what I should read. <laughs> I don't have a plan. Um, I'm going to read from my new book, which will be out in January. It's called Cleanness. As Ian said, um, it has the same narrator as What Belongs to You, who is this American living and working in Sofia, Bulgaria, a high school teacher. Um, I, the, it's not a prequel or a sequel to um, What Belongs to You. Um, each of the books is its own autonomous thing. You can read them independently, but they intermingle. And there's a way in which um, I hope each book is enriched by the other. Ian mentioned a character that appears at the end of What Belongs to You, a character who's just called R. I have this ridiculous affectation of not giving characters names, but just using initials. I have no defense for it. It annoys me as much as it annoys any of you. Um, but it's just a fact of the world that that's how I have to write. Um, that character is important in what belongs to you, but hardly appears. And one of the things I knew early on writing what belongs to you was that it was a very streamlined container, that it needed to be really focused on this love relationship between the narrator and Mitko, um, and who is the only one of my characters ever to have gotten a name, and even his name is generic. Mitko is um, the diminutive of Demeter, which is the most common Bulgarian male name, so it's sort of like a label. Um, but he's the only character to have a name. But that book needed to be focused really intensely on that relationship, which meant that a lot of the rest of the world is left out, including the story of the relationship with R. And one of the reasons that felt okay 
is that I knew that that relationship was going to be the heart of this next book, Cleanness. Um, I'm going to read from the central chapter of Cleanness, which is called The Frog King. And it's a chapter in fragments, and I'm going to read just a few of the fragments. Hopefully it won't take terribly long. Um, I hope it will make sense. What you need to know is that this is a kind of relationship the narrator has never had, and that his feelings for R, who is another foreigner living in Bulgaria, a college student, um, they suggest the possibility of a kind of love this narrator has thought he, he could never experience. Um, it's winter break, and R, you need to know that R is closeted, and that most of the time they have to be very careful about being private. And as I say, I'm just going to read around. Uh, I'll also say I'm going to read one section, the penultimate section. Um, there isn't a 41-page paragraph in this new book, but this section is several pages, a few pages, and it's all one paragraph. And it's a kind of sex scene. It's not exactly a sex scene, but it's kind of a sex scene. Um, sex scenes make people uncomfortable, which is okay. That's one of the things you should feel. Makes me a little uncomfortable because my family's here. <laughs> it's not too graphic. It's a little graphic. It's not too graphic. We'll see how it goes. This is why I wasn't going to read this, but um, after Ian's introduction, I want to read it. The Frog King. It was too early for there to be so much light so that when I woke, my first thought was of snow. We had pulled the drapes before sleeping, but they did almost nothing to darken the room. The snow caught scraps from street lamps and neon and cast them back up. It was bright enough to see R still sleeping beside me, cocooned in the blanket I had bought after the first night we spent together when I woke shivering to find him bound tight in the comforter we were sharing, swaddled beside me. He repeated the word all that day, apropos of nothing, swaddled, swaddled. He had never heard it before. The sound of it made him laugh. He would sleep for hours still. If I let him, he would sleep the whole day. He loved to sleep in a way I didn't, sliding into it at every chance, whereas almost always I slept poorly, uneasily. I woke finally with a sense of relief. He complained if I woke him. I'm on holiday, he would say, let me sleep. But, I, but he complained more if I let him sleep too long. We only had 10 days together, his winter vacation, which he had decided to spend in Sofia while everyone else he knew went home. Mornings were my time to work, to spend with my books and my writing, my time to be alone. I would get up soon, but for now I kept looking at him, his face bearded and dark, smoothed out by sleep. It was all I could do not to touch it, as I did often when he was awake, cupping his cheek in my palm or reaching around the curve of his skull. He had shaved his head at the end of the semester. I liked to run my hand around and around it until he ducked and told me to stop, annoyed but laughing too. Even annoyance was part of the pleasure we took in each other. We were that early in love. I was still groggy with sleep, when I turned into the main room and I stood uncomprehending for a moment before I realized that R had rearranged things in the night. He had moved the table to the middle of the room 
and had placed my winter boots on top of it beside the little tree we had bought earlier that week. Sticking up from the boots, there were packages wrapped in newspaper, his Christmas gifts for me. He must have hidden them somewhere after he arrived. He must have gotten out of bed in the night, careful not to wake me. He must have been quiet as he moved the furniture. I caught my breath at it. I felt a weird pressure and heat climb my throat. I felt like my heart would burst. Those were the words for it, the hackneyed phrase, and I was grateful for them. They were a container for what I felt, proof of its commonness. I was grateful for that, too, the commonness of my feeling. I felt some stubborn strangeness in me ease. I felt like part of the human race. We found the tree by chance one late afternoon. We were in a part of town I'd never seen before on the other side of the city center looking for a German supermarket, a chain that was popular in Western Europe but that had only, that, but that had only the single store in Sofia. It was less a store than a warehouse, really. There weren't shelves, but huge bins. People pawed through everything mixed together, a dozen kinds of chocolate bars in one bin, toothpaste and shaving cream in another. The chain had its own brand of food, and R was craving something from his life in Lisbon, a frozen lasagna, and when, he found, and when we found it in an oversized freezer case, he clutched it to his chest with happiness. It was a long walk from the store to the metro, longer because the sidewalks were caked with ice. R scolded me as we walked, telling me to take my hands out of my pockets to keep them free in case I slipped, as for whatever reason I did often enough. If it had been night, he would have passed his arm through mine to keep me upright. R saw the trees first, in the window of a little shop that was full of Christmas decorations. Even from outside, you could see how cheap they were, all metal wire and plastic bristles, but R insisted that we needed one, and ornaments, a box of lights. I want to have a real Christmas, he said. It was maybe three feet tall. It hardly weighed anything, but it was cumbersome. I held it in both arms like a child as we walked. I felt a little ridiculous sitting with it on the train, but R seemed proud. He kept one arm around it to hold it steady on the seat between us. When we got home, he wanted to trim the tree right away, and he opened the box of tinsel to find that it was far too large. We hadn't been paying attention. It was meant for a much bigger tree. He laughed as he wrapped it again and again around the branches. She was swaddled now, he said. It would keep her warm. Her, I repeated back to him, inquisitive, mocking him a little, and this gave him an idea. She needed a name, he said, and he decided to call her Madeline. I don't have any idea where it came from, but he loved to say it. He liked to give things names. I think it was a way of laying claim to them, and he called out to her every time he passed, almost singing it, Madeline, Madeline. He saved the box of ornaments for Christmas Eve, little glass balls we hung from hooks on the branches tucked among the tinsel. We knelt to arrange them, and when we finished, R sat back on his heels. Isn't she beautiful, he said, taking my hand in his. But he answered the question himself. She is, isn't she? I think she's beautiful. We went to Bologna because it was the cheapest place we could fly. There were tickets for 40 euros, a price I could afford. 
We packed a single carry-on each. Anything else would have meant a fee and rode in a cab to the airport's old terminal which the budget airlines used. It was my first time leaving the country. During breaks, when the other American teachers left for places near or far, Istanbul, Tangier, St. Petersburg, I stayed behind. I didn't want to travel, I said. I wanted to be settled in a single place. I studied Bulgarian, I read, I wandered the streets downtown. But I did want to travel with R, to leave Sofia, where even when his friends were gone, there was a pressure of secrecy, where it was too dangerous to hold hands in the streets, to kiss in public, however chastely, where everywhere we had to keep a casual distance. I wanted to be with him in a place where we could be freer with each other, a place in the West. It was my gift to him, a getaway, a bit of romance. We arrived at the airport early enough to be first in line for the unassigned seats and sat in the front row where there was extra room for our legs. Even so, my knees almost touched those of the single attendant who sat facing us strapped into her fold-out seat. She spoke English with an accent I couldn't place, not Bulgarian, but something Eastern European, and she smiled slightly, kindly, I thought, when the plane started down the runway, thrusting us all back and R moved his hand to cover mine, where it lay on my knee. There was so much to see, too much. I walked around in a daze of looking. We moved in and out of churches crowded with paintings, huge and smoke-darkened, the ceilings crammed with color. I got tired of trying to see them. R was full of zeal. He wanted to see everything. Who knows when we'll be back, he said. The dilemma of vacations, the exhaustion of the last chance. Everything became unremarkable. Nothing moved me. It was all a blur of perfection. I wanted to get the bus back to the hotel. I wanted to rest my eyes. But just one more thing, R said paging through the guidebook we had bought, and he led me to a small museum, a house converted after the artist who had lived in it had died. There were just a few rooms open and uncluttered, the walls painted mercifully white. It wouldn't take long for R to make his circuit. I followed him, barely looking at the paintings, which were small and unremarkable, or remarkable only for their plainness. They were quiet, an unambitious minor, I thought at first, still lifes and modest landscapes, interesting mostly for having so little to do with everything else we had seen. The painter had spent his whole life in this city, but seemed indifferent to the examples it offered, to the virtuosity and gorgeousness it prized. I found myself looking longer, looking more slowly. I let R walk on ahead. The same subjects appeared again and again, household objects, plates and bowls, not filled with flowers or fruit, but empty, set against a plain background. I stopped in front of one that showed a pitcher and cups, white and gray on a tan surface, behind them a blue wall. Something held me there looking, something made me lean in to look more closely. The cups were mismatched in color and in shape. The pitcher rose oddly elongated behind them. The whole painting was eccentric, asymmetrical. There was a kind of presence in the painting, I felt. I could sense it humming at a frequency I wanted to tune myself to catch. I liked the seeming naivety of it, 
the way the simple figures had been simplified further, purified or idealized to geometrical forms almost, but rendered bluntly, imperfectly. And the brush strokes were imperfect too, visible, haphazard, the paint distributed unevenly, inexpertly, but that wasn't right. Really, it was striving for something ideal. That was what I felt, the frequency I wanted to catch. What I took at first for blocks of color dissolved when I leaned in were modulated, textured, full of movement somehow. Not the movement of objects, but of light, which fell across them gently, undramatically. But that's not right either. It didn't fall across them. There weren't any shadows. I couldn't locate the light at all or tell if the scene depicted morning or noon. It was as if the objects emanated their own light, which didn't move from one quadrant of the painting to another as real life would, but vibrated as real light would, but vibrated somehow, giving a sense of movement and stillness at once. There was a promise in it, I felt. I mean a promise for me, a claim about what life could be. I woke a few hours later, too hot, stifling in the bedclothes. I switched on the lamp beside the bed. R slept so deeply I never had to worry about waking him on the nights I couldn't sleep when I spent hours beside him reading or writing. This time he did wake, or half wake, as I lay with a book propped on my stomach. He turned toward me and linked his arm through mine before settling back into sleep, his face pressed against my shoulder. I looked at him for a long time before going back to my book. They could make a whole life, I thought, surprised to think it these moments that filled me up with sweetness, that had changed the texture of existence for me. I had never thought anything like it before. I wanted to make him laugh at first. I meant it almost as a joke. We needed to laugh. It had been hard to return to Sofia after our days in Italy. More snow had fallen, but by the time we arrived, the city had turned gray again. The holidays were over. The cars kicked black sludge from their tires. And now it was his last night in my apartment. In the morning, he would gather his things and go back to Studenskigrad. His friends would arrive in the afternoon. We would return to our uncertain arrangements, emails and dates that he might break at the last minute or without any notice at all. Those were the conditions. They were non-negotiable. He hated it, he said. He didn't want to go back to hiding, and throughout the day his dread had increased and darkened, coloring everything until by nighttime he could barely speak. He had folded in on himself as he did sometimes. It was hard for me to reach him, to have any effect on him at all. We watched a movie sitting side by side on the couch. I don't remember what it was, something lighthearted, romantic, though he hardly laughed. We had never really watched movies together. It was always a pretense. We would kiss and touch each other and then forget the movie, but now it was all I could do to get him to kiss me back. Finally, he let me pull him up from the couch. I folded the computer shut and pulled him half-resisting into the bedroom. He resisted less there standing beside the bed. 
He opened his mouth to me. He let me draw him close and press my pelvis against his. He raised his arms for me to pull his shirt up and off, and I felt the mood shifting already. It lightened as his passivity became a game almost, his passivity and my insistence as I struggled with the buckle of his belt to the button on his jeans. I could feel him almost smile as I kissed him, as he answered me back more in his kisses, his tongue pressing against mine. I pushed his jeans and underwear down, breaking our kiss to kneel and hold them at his ankles while he pulled his legs free, kissing his cock, which wasn't hard yet, just once before I rose again. He moved to kiss me again, but I pulled away, then shoved him back, not hard. He could have resisted, but he didn't. He fell backward onto the bed. Onto our bed, I thought which was what it had become in those days, not a lonely place, but a place that belonged to both of us, a loving place. It was something I could think to myself, but not say out loud. I took off my own clothes quickly and then launched myself on top of him, which made him flinch and laugh just once and as if against his will. I caught myself with my hands, and when he reached out his own hands, bracing them against my chest, I grabbed them one by one at the wrist and pinned them above his head. He made a noise at this, a little growl, interested and interrogative as I ground against him, his cock harder now, mine fully hard. I lowered my face but dodged his kiss again, teasing him, and instead kissed his collarbone first one side and then the other and then the inside of his arm just below the elbow where I knew he was ticklish. And then I licked the pit of his arm slowly because I loved the taste of him, first the right and then the left, and he growled again. He was harder now. He pressed his hips up against mine, but I lifted myself off him beyond his reach. He moaned in frustration. He tried to pull his hands free, but I held them firm. Porta to bain, I said to him, behave. And then I did kiss him. I put my tongue in his mouth, and he sucked at it hard, tasting me, but tasting himself, too. That was what he loved, the taste of himself in my mouth. I broke off the kiss and dipped my head to his chest kissing first one nipple and then the other, which he didn't really like. He tolerated it. And then to go farther, I had to let go of his wrists, which didn't matter. He kept them obediently above his head. I kissed his ribs and then his stomach, always one side and then the other, keeping a symmetrical pattern, keeping it at his pelvis, too, pressing my lips to his right hip and his left, but avoiding his cock moving quickly. He made a noise of complaint, but kept his arms where I had left them, still playing our game. He jerked a little when I kissed the inside of his thighs. He was sensitive there, too, but he didn't try to stop me. He was being good. He let me do what I wanted. But I wasn't sure what I wanted, or what I wanted had changed. I had thought I wanted to make him laugh, that after that I wanted sex, but I didn't want sex, I realized, or not only sex. I had let my knees drop off the end of the bed as I moved lower. Soon I was kneeling on the floor at the foot of the bed. 
He was relaxed, more or less. His legs were outstretched, his feet splayed to either side, but his whole body tensed when he felt my lips on the sole of his foot, which he snatched away. I had to grab it and pull it back. He was ticklish there, too. He didn't like to be touched there. It was a line drawn early on when it became clear I was more adventurous in sex, had a wider palette of things that turned me on. I hope you're not into that, he had said, laughing. It's gross. I don't want you to be into that. <laughs> it was a difference between us that fewer things put me off, that I could be indifferent to something and still indulge it for my partner's sake. That was what he did now, I guess, when he let me pull his foot back to me, holding it in both hands as I kissed the sole again, the arch and then the pads at the base of his toes, each of them, and then the toes themselves. What are you doing, he said. And I couldn't answer. I wasn't sure what I was doing as I took the other foot in my hands and repeated what I had done with the first. I was moving slowly now, the tone had changed. I didn't want to make him laugh anymore. I didn't know what I wanted him to feel. I kissed his ankles next at three points, moving from the outside in, from right to left on his right leg, from left to right on his left, which would remain my pattern. Scups, R said, a question in the way he said it, his name for me or our name for each other, a play on the Bulgarian endearment. But I didn't answer. I made another band of these kisses, slightly higher than the first and then another. I would cover him in kisses. That was what I wanted to do. And I would do it even though I could feel R's impatience, even as he said again, scuppy, and then don't be cheesy, which was his warning against too much affection, against my surfeit of feeling. I ignored it moving up another inch. It would take a long time, I realized. When you imagine something like that, you don't think about how long it will take, how large a body is, how small a pair of lips. But I would do it, I decided. A kind of unhurriedness opened up in me, a weird, wide patience I sank into. I strung kisses across him, his calves and knees, his thighs, the flesh firm in the center and giving at the sides. They were places I had never touched him before, some of them, and this gave gravity to the moment, more gravity. I whispered, I love you, as I kissed him. And then two kisses later, I whispered it again, which became a new pattern to whisper it again and again. His cock was soft when I reached it, as mine was. I hadn't noticed it until then. I almost passed over it, kissing his upper thigh on the right and then the left, but I didn't skip it. I kissed it, too, as I had kissed the rest of him, and said again the words that somehow became more real with repetition. Usually, words wear out the more you use them. They become featureless, rote, and more than any others, this is true of the words I repeated to R. Even in our relationship that was still so new, they had lost most of their flavor. I remembered the fear I had felt the first time I spoke them to him weeks before, when they had had all their force. I had been terrified, really, not so much that they wouldn't be answered, they weren't, it would be days before he repeated them, as that they would scare him away, that he would startle like the wild thing I sometimes felt he was. 
but now we said them often when we left each other and were reunited, even if it was only a room we left, only minutes we were separated. But repeating the words now didn't dull them. It called them to attention somehow, to service. It restored them, and they became difficult to say again. I found myself almost unable to speak as I whispered into R's silence, kissing the soft flesh of his stomach, the firmer flesh over his ribs, his nipples, and the patch of hair at the center of his chest, his collarbone, the taut skin at his windpipe. His arms were still raised, but he had folded them at the elbow, crossing his forearms over his face. I kissed his armpits again, the exposed undersides of his arms, and then I was kneeling now, my knees on either side of him. I took his arms in my hands and moved them away from his face. He hadn't uttered a sound in all that time, the 15 or 20 minutes it had taken me to make my way up his body. Not since the interrogative of my name, the admonition I ignored. There hadn't been any change in his breath or none I had noticed, and so I was surprised to see the tears on his face. Two lines that fell toward his ears. He hadn't wiped them away. He didn't try to hide them when I moved his arm, or tried only by turning his face slightly, as if he didn't want to meet my gaze. Though his eyes were shut, there was no gaze to meet. I paused, wanting to speak, to ask, them, to ask him what they were for, his tears, but I knew what they were for. And so I hung over him a moment before I continued kissing him, the line of his jaw, his chin, his cheek, and lips, which didn't answer mine, which suffered themselves to be kissed, his ears, the track of his tears, his eyes. It was a kind of blazon of him, of his body. I love you. I whispered again and again to him. And then when I had laid the last line across his forehead, a garland, I thought, I had garlanded him. You are the most beautiful, I said to him. You are my beautiful boy. And he reached his arms up and pulled me down on top of him, clutching me. You are, he whispered to me. You are. You are. This is the last section I skipped. Um, in the center of Bologna for New Year's, they, they burn a statue. You need to know that. And they have a competition for artists to design the statue. And this year, the statue is a frog king. That's the title. This is the last section. They use some kind of accelerant they must have so that when the three children touch their torches to it, angling their bodies away, keeping the greatest distance between themselves and the fire, the flame leapt up the wood from the base to the ridiculous crown, the whole frog blazed up. And with it, there was a huge explosion of sound, air horns and rattlers and little handheld bells children jingled, and above them all human voices, the crowd cheering both the fire and the new year which had just struck. There were hundreds of people in the square, pressed tight near the wooden barricades that held them back from the fire, but more spread out near the edges where we were. There was space here for people to toast one another with wine and plastic cups or little glass bottles like those R had, brought, had bought for us, Prosecco with a twist-off cap. After we drank, I leaned toward him and cupped his face in my palm and we kissed. 
I moved my mouth in a way he liked, kissing first his upper lip and then the lower before I drew away, hanging my arm around his shoulder. And then as the statue burned, it was huge. It would take a long time to burn. There was another sound, a salute of drums and a burst of guitars. And then the far corner of the square lit up with floodlights and there was a new shout from the crowd as it shifted toward the platform where the band had begun to play, four skinny boys bent over their instruments. There was a keyboard as well as the guitars and drums. It was an American sound, I thought, which contrasted with the stone buildings around us with the pagan fire. R and I didn't move as the crowd thinned further. We wouldn't stay. It was cold and the band wasn't very good. We would watch the fire a little longer and then go back to the hotel. R pulled away from me suddenly and reached into his coat pocket, taking from it the packet of raisins he had bought earlier with the wine. I almost forgot, he said. It's almost too late. He handed me his bottle and took off one of his mittens so he could open the packet. Give me your hand, he said. So I put the bottles on the ground and held it out to him, taking my glove off as he asked, and he counted out 12 raisins, placing them in my palm in a single line from my wrist to the tip of my third finger, then counting another 12 for himself. It was the Portuguese tradition, he had told me, a raisin for each month of the year that had passed, a wish for each month of the year to come. He looked at me and smiled. Scups, he said, and we kissed again. He ate his all at once, tossing them in his mouth and putting his mitten back on before he leaned down for his bottle and turned to watch the fire. But I didn't watch the fire. I kept my eyes on him, though it was cold and I wanted to be back in the hotel with him in the warmth of our bed. I took my time. I put the raisins in my mouth one by one, thinking a wish for each though all my wishes were the same wish. Thank you. Yeah, did you all hear that question? Yeah, about continuing in the same voice as the first novel. It, so the, I mentioned before that the novels feel like, or the books feel like they are intermingled. And um, I wrote some pieces of this book as I was writing What Belongs to You. And so I knew, um, I knew that this was the next project. I'm drawn right now, I, you know, I have no idea what I wanna write in 10 years, but I'm drawn right now to the idea of, um, you know, I like writers whose books feel at once like well-made, well-shaped, autonomous things and like a kind of unfolding large project. Um, I know that the next book I write, which will be set in Kentucky, will also be this narrator's voice. Um, so, you know, for right now, um, 
it's interesting to me what kinds of invention interest me and what kinds of invention don't interest me. Right now, the invention of consciousness doesn't interest me. Like, I'm interested in trying to explore this consciousness in situations that might be invented. Um, but the idea of sort of starting wholesale with an, and like constructing a new consciousness right now isn't, isn't what I want to do. Um, I knew that I, I wanted to follow this voice further. Um, yeah. When you say the same voice, do you mean like that it's mysterious? It's in a different, but the same person or just the intuition of you? I kind of think that's almost, that's almost the same thing. I mean, to me, a successful voice and like what style is in literature, like I sometimes with my students, like to try to define style, I'll say that, you know, a, a successful style is really a whole life condensed to a voice. And so voice is that life. And so to say, I mean, the same, the same voice demands the same character, I think. So sort of style and consciousness are the same. I mean, my ideal is to have a style that is like a kind of transcription of consciousness. I mean, that's what fascinates me is like what thinking feels like. And this particular kind of thinking, or this particular person thinking. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Do you have any goals for Bulgarian novels that you wrote yet? I do. Thank you for asking. Um, Bulgarian novels available in English. There aren't that many of them, but there are more and more every year. The most famous living Bulgarian writer is named Georgi Gospodinov. Gospodinov. He has two novels available in English. Actually, there's only two novels. Um, Natural Novel and The Physics of Sorrow. They're both very beautiful. Natural Novel is published by Dalkey Archive, and Physics of Sorrow is published by Open Letter Books. So that's a good place to start. Among young writers, um, there is a, a very interesting, exciting young novelist named Angel Igoff whose first novel came out in translation with Open Letter Books. Um, Open Letter has a series of Bulgarian novels. They publish a contemporary Bulgarian novel every year. Um, Bulgarian literature is especially strong in poetry. And I'll mention actually um, one of the first Bulgarian people I ever spoke to um, was a man named Nikolai Atanasov was a young poet who left Bulgaria and um, was living in Florida. And I spoke to him because he had been um, mentioned to me as a gay Bulgarian writer. He has a book called um, Organichni Formi, Organic Forms, which to my knowledge is pretty much the first book of literature to address explicitly queer life. And it's a really difficult book. It's a book that was made possible for him by his reading of American poets, poets like Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath. Um, he was an absolutely brilliant poet. Several of his poems were translated gorgeously by the brilliant Bulgarian writer Demeter Kanarov, and they were published in American Poetry Review, which I really urge you to look them up. Um, Nikolai addressed um, homophobia and the fact that having been born into a you know, small Bulgarian um, village, it was impossible for him to live. One of his most um, 
beautiful, powerful, devastating poems has a scene in which his mother forces a wooden spoon into his mouth so that he'll know what it's like to suck dick. Um, he came to America and faced not only homophobia, but xenophobia, the absurdity of American immigration. He was living as an undocumented person here for many years, working, delivering pizzas, one of the most brilliant poets I've ever met. Um, he died a couple of weeks ago. His body was found on the beach. And all signs are um, that he committed suicide. Um, you know, this absolutely gloriously talented poet who was killed by homophobia and xenophobia. Um, Nikolai Atanasov, please look up his poems. Maybe one last question up there as well. Yeah, Christian. Yeah, so this is always a dangerous thing to say to like people in an academic context. <laughs> and I, I teach a lot, I teach creative writing a lot, and you know, whenever you teach creative writing, you're invited to give a craft talk. And I always feel super fraudulent doing that because I don't believe in craft. Like, I think craft is a big lie, I think it's a false metaphor. I think making a story is not like building a house or building a chair or building a table. Like if you build a table, and the table stands up and doesn't fall down, you've built a successful table. Like, no one can say it's not a table. People can say that's not a novel all the time. It's not, it doesn't have the same kind of existence in the world and it doesn't function according to the same kinds of objectively observable rules. So like anything we say about craft, I feel like is a kind of story we whisper to ourselves in the dark when we're scared to get us through the night. Um, and it's all back formation. And like, it's not like there's a set of tools that you learn and then you carry it from book to book to sort of build your books. In fact, every writer I know feels like with each new book, they're starting from fresh. They don't know anything. You know, they're absolutely dumb. Um, to me, the most beautiful thing I ever heard anyone say about craft was actually at Skidmore last summer, where I know a couple of you were, um, where the novelist Mary Gateskill said that she thinks about craft as you're thrown into the water, you don't know how to swim, whatever way you can move your body that keeps your head above the water, that's what, that's craft, like that's what works. And that's really true to my experience of it. I never set out, it's interesting because that's different from poetry for me. With poetry, I did sometimes have formal conceits. I would say, I want to write a poem that does these formal things. With prose, I never do that. Maybe it's because I had no training in prose. Um, and, and, you know, I wrote What Belongs to You without ever having taken a fiction class or written a piece of fiction before. And I really did feel like I was writing, like writing was moving forward very slowly in the dark without any idea what I was doing. Um, you know, the only, like, craft thing, so, um, everything emerged organically. And I guess the thing that I would say about form, about large structure, large scale structures of form, I never premeditate them. 
They're always a surprise to me. The long paragraph in What Belongs to You was written on fragments of paper, on scraps of paper. It was written on trash, on like receipts and napkins. So I didn't know it was all one paragraph until I typed it up. Um, to me, a sentence is not just a container for thought, but a tool for thinking. And a sentence is a sort of technology for discovery. Like, I feel like my job as a writer is first of all to try to see as clearly as I can, to observe as clearly as I can, to observe a world and observe characters as carefully as I can, and then to try to be attention to try to be attentive to the intelligence of language itself. Like when I'm writing, I often feel like I'm not just writing a sentence, but I'm also writing a sentence. Like there is an energy in syntax, which is a kind of linguistic intelligence that is smarter than I am that I'm trying to, to allow the sort of energy of a sentence to guide me where it's going. That's one way that, you know, when I was writing What Belongs to You, a sentence would begin in, begin in Bulgaria and end in Kentucky. I didn't plan that. But I sometimes feel like if I'm writing well, a sentence is like sort of like a heat-seeking device, like it's turning towards the moments or the, the places of greatest emotional heat, emotional intensity. And then the large scale forms for me, like I do, I, I write at the level of sentence and then at the level of scene. I never write at the level of book. Um, and the large scale patterns emerge from the attempt to be attentive to that sort of small scale movement of thinking. Which I'll say that, you know, writing well for me, I, I one sign that I might possibly, you never know you're writing well, but one sign that I might possibly not be writing badly is if I'm surprised. And if all of the sudden I feel that um, sort of the ground has fallen away beneath me and a sentence has sort of launched me into an abyss. And to me, um, uh, anything worth writing about has a kind of density and complexity that confounds our usual moral accountings. And to me, questions like desire or desire across difference, um, these are more, these carry with them morally irresolvable questions. Like desire is the central theme of what I write. And anytime I write about desire, anytime I think about desire, I feel like I am thinking about an abyss. And to me, art is the technology we have for navigating the abyss. Thank you all so much. Thank you.